0: All right, I trust you still have your Bibles open to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. Um, We've been, oh, I guess this is about our fifth week going through the book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, just reach into the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find one that looks like this. This is the version that I'm preaching out of. And you'll find our text on page 319 in there. I do encourage everyone... Whether it's an electronic copy or whether it's this paperback copy or your own copy of, uh, hard cop, hardback copy of, uh, God's Word, I do encourage every one of us to have God's Word open in our laps as we go through, as we go through her, go through His Word, uh, this morning. Um, we're gonna be in chapter three, the passage that Ben, uh, read just a little bit earlier, and we'll work our way, uh, through the first fifteen verses. Well over the last uh the last few weeks as we've made our way through uh the book of Ecclesiastes you've you've noticed that this is a very unique book in scripture. Uh and as we've uh, hopefully you've noticed that not just by the uh, the way the text is written but also by the way that it's been preached. One of the things that um that I've learned and that I that I try to teach uh, teach young preachers is that your sermons should be shaped not only textually by what the word says but also emotionally by what the text says so that the uh so that the feelings so that the different uh the different thoughts all of those things should be shaped in the way uh, that the message is proclaimed so one of the things that you probably noticed I've heard uh, several comments as we've gone through the last few weeks is all the different song references. <laughs> now, as you've heard those song references, you probably think, well, your preacher's just got a, a weird, uh, a weird sense of taste and music and, and all of that. Um, but the different song, re- you probably never suspected that you would hear song references from a preacher, uh, by Pink Floyd and T. Swift and U2 and Beyonce and Jimmy Buffett in sermons. But there's a method to the madness. There's a method to the madness because um, when you hear things like that, your eyes don't glaze over nearly the way that they would glaze over. If I started talking about the philosophers (laughs) that have shaped their philosophy in the same vein as Solomon, if I went down through uh, the messages and I talked about René Descartes and Hume and Jung and Kinsey and William James and Friedrich Nietzsche, um, yeah, see, if you saw what I see, your eyes glazing over just when I list those names. <laughs> but when I say something about Pink Floyd, there's folks who go, you know, and perk up. Here, here's the reality. The way things work, have worked throughout history, what starts off in the dusty books of philosophers, the kinds of things that make most of our eyes glaze over, what starts in their head and in their dusty books, those thoughts filter down into the academy and into art galleries. Some of those things still glaze over our eyes, but as we receive those, we think, well, okay, that's still, that's the academy and that's, that's the elite. That's the art galleries. But then it filters down from those areas all the way down into pop culture. And by the time that it gets into pop, pop culture, it's woven its way into our songs and our movies and our TV shows. And by the time that we hear it in our songs and see it on our TV shows, we know that whatever that philosophy that started years ago or was articulated years ago, by the time that it gets to the popular level, you know that it has already woven its way into the fabric of our society. So a few years ago when people were just absolutely shocked when Lady Gaga would stand up and sing that she was born that way, she was just reflecting what had already been filtered through culture for decades and decades and decades. See, by the time that it gets to that popular level, it's already woven its way through society. Pop music, movies, TV shows, those things don't shape culture. Sometimes we see those and think that they're shaping culture. No, culture has already been shaped and those merely reflect where culture has already been. As we look at these first eight verses in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, this is probably the most familiar passage in Ecclesiastes. If you've never sat down to read the book, when Ben started reading this, you were probably going right along because it's so, it's such a familiar passage to us. The reason it's so familiar to us is because of a pop song in the 1960s. It was a number one hit pop song written by Pete Seeger actually back in the 50s and made, <clears throat> sold millions in a song by the birds in 1965. Now, for those of us that weren't around in 1965, we still know the song, and we especially know how it was revived in the soundtrack of Forrest Gump. By the way, that soundtrack of Forrest Gump sold over six million copies in the U.S. And that song is so popular, I I thought about having, Ken and I talked about this, and I thought about having him come up and sing it. matter of fact, I asked him to, but he refused. I don't know why he refused. <laughs> we could have called that special music and folks would have thought, yeah. <laughs> but the reason that or many of the ways that we look at this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, have been shaped by our understanding through the filter of that song. Here's the problem with that. You'd think that that's fine because the song is almost identical to these first eight verses in Ecclesiastes. but there's a problem with that because I said almost. See, um, Pete Seeger, he got an award for this this song at one time in his life, and he said, "Well, I guess I'll go ahead and accept that song, accept that award, since, award since I did write six words." <laughs> but those six words that he wrote really twisted the meaning of what this song is. You know, at the end, when it says, a time for war and a time for peace, he wrote, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. And in the context of the 1960s, the middle 1960s, you know that what he was doing, what he did, just by adding that little phrase, was to take this and turn the whole thing into a war protest. That's By the way, that's why it made the soundtrack of Forrest Gump, because it was during that time in the movie that it was talking about all the different war protests. But even that is not what fundamentally changed the meaning of the song. What fundamentally changed the meaning of the song were the words that were added that became the title of the song. Anybody remember what the title of the song was by the birds? Turn, turn, turn. And when it, when he added those words, turn, 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 he changed the fundamental meaning of the song from the fact that what, from his observation that God is in control of this endless cycle of things and you can't do anything about it, so you might as well just hang on for the ride. It changed the meaning from Solomon's meaning to saying, Turn, turn, turn. It's not too late. You can do this. We can, we can change these things. We can, we have the control to change all of those things. It's not too late. By the sheer effort of your will, you can change the world. Was what Pete Seeger was saying when he added those words. That's the same thing every young generation is told, isn't it? Oh, you can change the world. Just with a few hashtags or a few whatever, you can, You can change the world, can't you? But see, what happens, that happened with the baby boomer generation. It happened with my generation, Gen X. And you can even see it beginning to happen with this millennial generation. You have the starry-eyed optimism of you can change the world. And then life happens, right? And as life happens then that starry-eyed optimism begins to slowly change into cynicism. It begins to slowly change into cynicism because under the sun, you start to realize, I don't have much control over anything. Just like you couldn't control the day of your birth, you're not going to be able to control the day of your death. that's where Solomon found himself in our passage. He had gone from this young, powerful, brilliant, wealthy king, and now he's at the end of his life and he's looking back, and what did all of that wealth and what did all of that fame, what did all of that prosperity, what was he really able to change with that? Now as an old man looking back on his life, he's looking back and he's realizing Even with all that, I still wasn't really in control of anything. Under the sun, nothing of any significance really changes. That song, the first eight verses of chapter 3, it's really Solomon's first observation about his complete lack of control over life. And you can sum it up with this popular phrase, Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Let's look back at verses 1 through 8 and we'll all sing it together. No, let's just read. Let's just read. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, just a structural analysis of these of these eight verses, this poem, these actually verses two through eight is a poem that Solomon wrote here and just a structural analysis of that. This poem is made up of 14 contrasting pairs of 28 times for things to happen. So 28 times for things to happen and he sets them up in these 14 contrasting pairs, 14 things that we would see as positive, happy things, and 14 things that we would see as negative things. All right, for you math wizards in the crowd, what happens when you add 14 positives and 14 negatives together? What what happens? What do you come up with? Come up with a big fat zero. I asked somebody that this week, and it took him four tries, and I finally had to give him the answer. So I'm, I'm thankful, that, <laughs> I'm thankful that, that you knew that 14 positive things... And 14 negative things added together comes up with a big fat zero. Now if you look at also in this, in this structure, (coughs) in the first two lines, the positive thing is listed first. And then in the next four things, the negative thing is listed first. The next four things, the positive thing is listed first. The next two things, the, the, I think I've got it backwards. The next two things in the negative first, And then one with the positive first finished, followed by final, the final one is the negative first. All right, I got that all tongue twisted. So here's what it is. You got two positive, minus four, plus four, minus two, plus one, minus one. Okay, so when you read that and you lay it out, it seems like it's this wonderfully orderly flow, this wonderfully orderly Poem, but underneath it, you have the two, four, four, two, one. Two. It's all chaos. It's all a chaotic structure. Thank you, Lord, for the rain. But underneath the surface of all of that, what seems to be just this perfectly orderly thing is this undertow of disorder and chaos. Behind the order is randomness, is meaninglessness. And he communicates that even just in the structure of this poem. Or at least so it seems, right? Because under the surface of what seems like control, that we have the reins of this thing and we can get it to go where we want it to go. Underneath the reins of that illusion of control solomon comes to realize that he can't control anything that really matters and all of it adds up to a big fat zero in the end and you know (laughs) that's still the case isn't it you know we look and we we like to think of ourselves in this generation we like to think of ourselves as so highly advanced and and with all of this rich amazing technology and all of these things right But with all of our technological and all of our scientific advancement, it's still the case. That seeming appearance of control has an undertow of chaos. Even with fertility treatments and in vitro fertilization and cloning and CRISPR genetic manipulation... I can't even say it. that, That CRISPR technology that manipulates genes and everything else. With all of that... Scientific ability to manipulate things. We still are not capable of creating life from nothing. And we still are not capable of sustaining life beyond a certain point. Babies are born and people die. And there ain't a thing we can do about it. With all the GMOs, all the agricultural technology that, that we have today, Monsanto cannot create seeds out of nothing. And even if they could create seeds out of nothing, they wouldn't have anything that they created themselves to plant it in. We, we still have to plant whatever seed it is into the ground that God created and pray that it grows. And then start it all over again. And there ain't anything you can do to change it. No matter how many impossible Whoppers Burger King sells, we still have to kill animals to eat their meat. People will still be killed by accidents and still be killed by murder and still be killed by war. And compassionate doctors and nurses and moms and dads will still work to try to heal the things that make us sick and that are broken about us. Killing, hurting Healing. It's a cycle that goes on and on and on and it, there ain't a thing you can do about it. Sometimes despite our best efforts, uh, and you know, I love all the restoration and all of those things of old buildings, but sometimes despite our best efforts, buildings need to be torn down. And sometimes need, things need to be built in their place, don't they? A parking garage in Bluefield needs to be torn down so that parking lots can be built <laughs> in its place. And City Council tells us there ain't anything we can do about it, right? <laughs> we all have times of weeping and mourning, don't we? And there's no amount of therapy or no amount of medication that can keep that from happening, those cycles of weeping and mourning. <clears throat> And even in the worst circumstances, even in the most atrocious circumstances, you cannot help, you cannot keep people from finding ways to laugh and to even dance. Even in the worst circumstances. Even if it's just a head (laughs) bob. That's about the farthest dance that I get. Uh, when when the praise team plays and, and Leah plays the bass, I keep trying to get her to get the the bass you know, everybody that plays the bass has to have the, the head bob, right? But I don't know. She 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 doesn't she doesn't do that. But no matter what, that will come through. Even the preacher on Footloose can't stop that, right? And so it moves throughout the poem. Solomon is poetically, even cynically, he's describing how stuff happens in life and how we really don't have any ultimate control over any of it. With all of his wisdom and all of his power and all of his authority and all of his influence, he could not keep bad stuff from happening and he could not create good stuff, make good stuff happening out of nothing. Under the sun, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that stuff happens. Stuff just happens. It just happens. And there's nothing you can do about it. Under the sun, under the seeming uh, veneer of order, is chaos. And there's nothing you can do about it. Which leads Solomon to his second observation under the sun. His second observation under the sun is that you are definitely not in control. Look at verses 9 and through 11. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Alright, I hit two phrases in there. God makes everything beautiful in its time and He put eternity into our heart. And those are two phrases that, once again, are probably the only things that most people are familiar with in the book of Ecclesiastes. And those two phrases, when they're hanging out there in space, not connected with the rest of the text, they sound sweet, don't they? Oh, God made everything beautiful in its time. But get past the Instagram meme and look carefully at what he's saying here. This isn't sweet. Solomon is being more cynical than Seinfeld here. In verse nine, he expressed his defeated frustration. He's basically saying, why bother? Just why bother? What gain has the worker from his toil? Why, why bother with all of this? Now, like a lot of people, he gets real religious in the way that he talks about his cynicism and talks about stuff. But the God that he describes in this passage is not the God of the Bible. I hope that you can see that, and if not, then I hope by the time we get done with this message, you can see that the God that he's describing here is not the God of the Bible. The God that Solomon is describing is maybe a God who created everything, or at least who created the systems where everything could exist, but then He wound it up and somehow walked away. Just to let everything happen. The God that Solomon is describing is Thomas Jefferson's God. He's Benjamin Franklin's God. He's a God of the deist. He's the God of the watchmaker who made the watch and wound it up and ignored it. And let it run. The word that's translated beautiful there in verse 11 it, in, in the original Hebrew it carries the idea of appropriate or proper or, or fitting. In other words, this impersonal, dispassionate God put the gears and the springs together for this thing to keep time. It, it runs on its own and you just can't do anything to change it. it it's appropriate. It fits. Tick, 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 tick. Time's passing. Not a thing you can do about it. Just like you can't change the seasons, you can't change the times for any matter under heaven is what he is observing under the sun. But the most frustrating, the most confusing thing to Solomon is that he's not satisfied with his lack of control. He's not satisfied just to be a cog in the wheel. He's not not satisfied with that. He he says that God has put eternity into our heart. In other words, God has hardwired this God who, who fashioned the watch that He wound up and walked away from. That same God built into that, hardwired into us this yearning that this isn't all that there is. We're not satisfied with what we perceive to be this endless circle of life. We sit in there and we have this angst, this anxiety, this desire for it not to be so. Solomon had an unquenchable desire to understand the things that couldn't be understood. He had the desire to understand what is impossible to understand apart from the revealed Word of God in Scripture. He was trying to figure it out just by what he observed under the sun. And you see where it leads. What he's done is he's rejected the very resource that God gives us to fill that longing, that eternity, that longing for eternity that's in our heart. And instead, he's trying to fill it with things that he can observe and that he can learn and that he can reason out and that he can do under the sun. And that brings us to his two conclusions that he comes up with in this passage. As he observes these things under the sun and as he comes up with this just hopeless observation, he derives two conclusions out of it. And the first conclusion is, that he comes up with. Are you ready for this? first conclusion that he comes up with is hakuna matata. Um, now that's not the Hebrew. I'm not speaking in tongues anything like that. Don't get all freaked out. For those of you who watch The Lion King, it's the same philosophy that Solomon came up with here. Look at verses 12 and 13. He said, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. So in other words, since you're not in control of anything, and since nothing you do really matters, then just don't worry, be happy. Or as Timon and Pumbaa put it in The Lion King, Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata, ain't no passing craze. Should I sing it? <laughs> Anthony says, yeah. I say, no. <laughs> ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's a problem-free philosophy. You just go through life and you say, don't worry, be happy. Now, that song's going to be in your head all day. You can thank me later on <laughs> when you can't get rid of that earworm. Enjoy some good food. Just hang out and have a cold one with your buddies. And even though your work at the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company doesn't really matter in the long run, you can at least have fun making fun of your boss. Solomon says that's exactly what the distant deistic God wound you up to do. Or as Nike says, just do it. Just do it. You see, you're stuck. His conclusion was that you're stuck in this circle of life. It's going round and round and round and there's absolutely nothing that you can do that will ultimately impact or change this circle of life, whether Mufasa is sitting on top of Pride Rock or Simba is sitting on top of Pride Rock, you're stuck in this circle of life and there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. The circle of life goes on and on and on and on. You can't change it. You can't control it. You can't stop it. You might as well just make fun of your boss, and have a good time at work. Because that's the best that you can do. Under the sun, Solomon's first conclusion was hakuna matata. His second conclusion was, it is what it is. Look at verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, if it is, it already has been. If you think you got rid of something and advanced beyond it, it just comes back again. Like measles. Like corduroy. You think you get rid of it, and it just continues to come back and come back and come back. Once again, Solomon is using very religious-sounding language. As a matter of fact, he's saying things that are true, right? But he has such a twist on those things that it paints a picture of God, even though it says true things about Him, it paints a picture of God that is completely not true. The God that he describes is far from the God of the Bible. The God that he describes is a fatalistic God. Solomon has come to the conclusion that despite all of his power and all of his wealth and all of his influence, he's not in control of anything. But when you keep your eyes open and when you see creation around you, you can't help but see the amazing order to everything, right? You can't help but see that. The the leaves are falling from trees right now. And we know because we have observed it over season after season after season, those leaves that fall off the trees now will grow back on those trees come the spring. It's a cycle, but there's an amazing complexity. There's an amazing order to everything. So even if the most powerful man in the world can't control things, he comes to the conclusion that someone, something else or someone else has to. So he concludes that this distant, deistic God that he's fashioned in his mind, this distant, watch-winding God, must be the one who's in control of everything. He's in control of everything, but he's distant. He's not personal. He doesn't care. He wound it up, wound up these systems, these orderly systems, and he walked away from it. That's Solomon's God. His God is fatalistic. Not only has He wound up nature and left left nature to run on its own, He wound you and I up and left us to figure it out on our own. There's nothing we can do that can really add any value to anything. And nothing that we can do can ultimately disrupt or destroy anything. Once again, we find ourselves, after we've read a section and studied a section of Solomon's philosophy, we find ourselves feeling... Empty and hopeless and vain. Because that's his conclusion under the sun, right? His conclusion is that everything is vanity. It's a puff of smoke. It's a dead end. Under the sun, life's a meaningless clock wound up by a distant clockmaker. We can't fix what's broken without it breaking again. We can't change anything that won't eventually be changed back. The things that we cure eventually die, don't they? The things that we build up will eventually be torn down. So rather than becoming a completely hopeless, depressed cynic, what Solomon says is he says, hey, just just accept the fact that it is what it is and don't worry, be happy. That's his solution. But listen to me. There is a better way. Amen? Because God is not a distant, fatalistic, deistic watchmaker that wound things up and walked away. No, God is a personal God who revealed Himself to us in His Word. His written Word The Bible and His living word, His son, Jesus. He not only created everything from nothing, He actively sustains everything. He is actively involved in everything. Listen to how Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three describes our personal, involved, loving God. Hebrews 1 chapter 1 or chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. See, our God not only spoke things into existence, He not only created everything, He has spoken into His creation by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. By becoming like the creatures that He created. And He continues to speak into His creation through His Word, by the power of His Spirit. Oh no, He's not a distant God. He's not a, he's not a God that doesn't care. He's not a, an unconcerned God. No, He is with us. Make no mistake about it, God is in control. God is in control of all things at all times and always, but He's not distant. Psalm 145, verses 17-19 through says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who will call on Him and to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, those who respect Him, those who are in awe of Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Oh, He's not a distant God. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that He stepped into what Solomon saw as this closed cycle of life, this meaningless circle of life. He stepped into what Solomon had wrongly perceived that way. He personally stepped into that. He sent His Son to take on flesh in this creation and dwell amongst us to experience the living and dying and weeping and crying and laughing and dwell with us right in the middle of this mess. Galatians chapter four, verses four through five says, but when the fullness of time had come, you see the difference just in that phrase? Oh, there's a time for this and a time for that and a time for this, time for that, time for this, time for that, time for this endless circle of time. No. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the middle of all of that, so that we might be loved and adopted as His children. No, time isn't some meaningless cycle that's wound up by a distant God. No, time is the flow of God's perfect plan and purpose. And in the fullness of time, Jesus came. He came to live for you. He came to die for you. He came to rise again to give you new life in Him. Jesus came to give you meaning and purpose in the middle of a life that when you look at it only from the perspective of under the sun seems to have no meaning or purpose. Jesus came to give you meaning and purpose right in the middle of that. He came to give you peace and joy and contentment even when things don't make sense. He came to give you victory and freedom and courage to live the life that He created you to live. He came to bring you the change and the newness that only He can bring to bring new life from old flesh, dead flesh. Look back at Ecclesiastes verses 1-8. through Jesus came so that you could be born again. He came so that you could be planted and never plucked up. Jesus came so that you could be ultimately healed and never die. Jesus came to build you up so that you could never be torn down. Jesus weeps with you. He laughs with you. He mourns with you. He dances with you. Jesus came to forever hold you in His embrace. He seeks you and will never, ever, ever let you go. He keeps you and will never cast you away. Jesus came to mend the broken relationship between you and your Creator and to heal up all the places that have been torn in your life. He'll sit with you in the silence of your heart and He's spoken His Word into you. He loves you and through the blood of His cross He's made a way for you to have peace with God. That's what time it is. The One who created the seasons, the One who created every matter under heaven desires to give you all of that. All of that richness. He desires to lift your eyes Above what the, those, those only things that you can see under the sun and lift your eyes so that you can fix them firmly on His Son, Jesus. Only question is, is will you let Him? Will you reject your fatalistic view of God? Will you reject your view of God as some sort of a distant Creator that doesn't care about you? Will you reject your under-the-sun view of God? And will you lift your eyes to see the God who loved you enough to send His Son to take on flesh and become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him? Will you see the stuff that's happening in your life that you're not in control of? And will you surrender your vain attempts of control to the only one who really is in control? That's what it means to make him Lord of your life. It means that you're surrendering control to the one who really can control. Will you trust Jesus as your master and savior and Lord? Will you call on him in the midst of your chaos and cynicism? Will you do that now? Because now is the appointed time of salvation.